and then obviously next week we'll come back again and we'll do part 2 and the week after that we'll do part 3 so as always shrikant sir will give the presentation in the beginning and then if anybody or uh, anyone has any questions you know you can ask your questions and we will answer them in the latter half so for, to begin with sir thanks a lot for coming thank you for organizing this thing <laughs> okay sir fir main abhi screen share kar raha hu and then we can begin yeah all right sir so i'll go to the first slide now yeah now one thing uh, uh, shall i start yeah yes okay now yeah. the thing is that uh, everyone discusses this aryan issue but no one seems to realize that it is basically a linguistic issue it is nothing else then you you find people arguing what the word aryan means they'll say arya means noble and uh, women used to address their husband as arya putra so uh, and never, no one ever spoke about uh, aryan invasion before and all that but uh, this whole discussion about aryans is based purely on linguistics because nowhere is there any archaeological or textual reference to this indo european family or the aryans before all this subject was discussed by european scholars during the colonial period now this concept came into existence when they discovered the linguistic family relationship between north indian central asian iranian and european languages it started with when they saw sanskrit and they realized that the language and grammar seemed very close to that of greek and latin in fact they found that they could uh, uh, many things which they could not explain in greek and latin were explained by for example panini's grammar of the sanskrit language so then they realized that these languages constituted one family and uh, and must have had a common origin in a common ancestral language because these are obviously different languages and yet they are related to each other so they must have had a common ancestral language and they must have originated in a common area now since these languages are spoken right from sri lanka to the south of india right up to iceland and uh, greenland to the west of europe northwest of europe so they realized that uh, it couldn't have been originally spoken all over this area it must have been spoken in one particular part of this area and then it spread everywhere so that gave them the uh, impetus to start research in this the subject of the original homeland of this family of languages they uh, initially called these languages arya or airya uh, arya actually aryan because in the rigveda the people refer to them the composers refer to themselves as arya and in the avesta they refer to themselves as airya and these are the two oldest texts then they also connected it to words like air the uh, name of ireland some people dispute the connection so anyway from that this word came into being 
and later after this word got a bad name during the nazi regime then they started uh, using the word indo european which is really the best word because it is a purely geographical word with no uh, colors given to it it's just points out that this is spoken from india to europe this language family now according to this theory the first thing is that the, these languages originated in the steppes of south russia russia and it had 12 branches which migrated from this homeland in the course of time second is that indo iranians were one group of two branches out of 12 which migrated from south russia to central asia over a period of time they settled down in central asia for some time and developed a common culture before separating in different directions that is among the indo aryans and the iranians you find many things in common which are not there in the other 10 branches so it shows that after separating from the other 10 branches they were together for a longer time during which they developed that common culture now after that the indo aryan branch migrated into the punjab where the people settled down and they developed the vedic culture and the rigveda was composed after that they spread all over north india so that uh, each subsequent samhita text according to them shows a eastern geography like the yajurveda is centered more or less around aryavarta or uh, centered mainly around up uttar pradesh and uh, the atharva veda the last of the four samhitas goes as far east as bengal because it refers to the tiger of bengal it refers to the magadha and uh, uh, other eastern kingdoms so uh, this is the third um, point and after that the all the north indian languages are descended from this language which the indo aryans brought into india when they were composing the rigveda now the fourth point is that the original languages of india were non aryan so now which are these 12 branches of indo european languages you have to understand they are starting from the west they are italic celtic germanic baltic slavic illyrian that is albanian dracophrygian that is armenian hellenic that is greek anatolian that is mainly hittite and iranian tocharian and indo aryan indo aryan is the easternmost italic is not actually the westernmost but if you start from south east europe south west europe and then move in an arc and come to india this is the west to east order now there is no archaeological identification anywhere of the original proto indo europeans indo iranians or even the vedic indo aryans in india to this date as no suspected site has yielded readable records now so this whole ait case is based not on any textual tradition or any inscriptions or any archaeological proof it is based wholly on the basis of linguistic arguments and later those arguments are sought to be corroborated by textual analysis which is a separate issue here i will not generally refer to textual analysis unless it pertains to the linguistic points now uh, next now this entire ait case is based only on linguistic arguments but on examination and this is such a widely held belief that as conrad else has often pointed out archaeologists and uh, others when they can't prove the aryan invasion they say but linguistics has proved it and according to him even linguists when they can't prove it linguistically they say the archaeologists have proved it so everyone tries to you know pass the buck but the some of the conclusion is that there was an aryan invasion now all these linguistic arguments 
are either naive and childish or fake and fraudulent. I know many people don't like my use of the word fraudulent, but when you examine the nature of those arguments and the way in which the so-called scholars stick to those arguments through thick and thin, ignoring the contrary evidence, it has to be called fraudulent. And when you examine each of the arguments in, in fact, proves the out of India theory, I know it sounds uh, difficult to believe, but it is a fact. Now here we will examine and dissect all the known linguistic arguments of the Aryan Unijin theory. And I state right now, I challenge anyone to disprove our case. Disprove our case, not by referring to me, how I am, what I am, what is my politics, what is my qualification, etc. But to examine these linguistic arguments from the linguistic point of view and or produce a single other new argument or an old argument, which I may have missed out here inadvertently and which will prove the Aryan invasion theory case. I challenge them because no one can do it. So I, what will be the reaction when they know they cannot answer it? They will simply ignore and stonewall the whole debate or reduce it to a slanging match and name calling campaign in order to sabotage the debate itself. This is the result I predict. Now, firstly, let us discuss the old childish arguments. You know, these are not evidence. They're just like, you know, how small children discuss things and then they praise, place very small and naive and pedestrian arguments. Now, there are these four kinds of arguments which are made, which have been made right from the beginning. And you find that even today, serious people, educated people make these arguments. First is that there are non-Indo-Aryan languages in India, the Dravidian, Austric, Burushaski, Andamanese, Sino-Tibetan, etc. Now, if the Indo-Aryan languages originated in India, the Aryans would have first Aryanized India before spreading out. How is it that so many uh, non-Aryan languages are still there in India, non-Indo-European languages? That is the first question they ask as if it is something, you know, very intelligent. Second is they point out that out of 12 branches, Europe has many more branches. India has only one, basically, Indo-Aryan. Now, third is, they say the homeland should be a geographically central area from where people migrated in all directions. How can it be that right from the eastern end, India is at the eastern end of the Indo-European belt. Why was there migrations only in one direction? Why didn't they migrate to, for example, Southeast Asia or China or uh, something like that? Now, uh, the, and the fourth argument is, if the other branches had, this is a very popular argument, as I, as I am pointing out, ideologically diverse scholars like Witzel, Manasa Taramgini and Devadat Patnaik, who may be having different viewpoints on everything, they all of this make this, which I call it a mentally deficient argument. They say that if the other Indo-European branches, 11 branches had migrated from India, why have they not taken some purely Indian features which with them, such as names for purely Indian animals and plants? And secondly, the distinction between dental note sounds, and cerebral sounds, this is found, this is a phenomenon, linguistic phenomenon, which is found only in India, in all the branches in India, Aryan, Dravidian, Austric, and Burushaski. I don't know about the borderline Sino-Tibetan languages and all that. Certainly not an Andamanese, I suppose. Now, now we can, let us examine these arguments one by one. Remember, these language, these are not linguistic arguments. They give no evidence. 
they just are like a small child arguing you know why is this so i, I, I don't know if the word what about uh, applies to this but anyway now we'll see and these arguments when you actually examine the logic of the argument you find that what they are arguing is going against the general situation in the world i think in the case of uh, uh, the ayodhya debate also conrad has had pointed out how all the arguments seem to suggest that uh, islamic invaders behaved differently in india and especially in ayodhya than they did everywhere else in the world so here also they seem to believe you know that ling linguistic logic is different for india than it is for the rest of the world so let us see what actually their logic is now first argument is why didn't they aryanize the whole of india before going out now this seems to suggest you know that people sat down had a conference they said let's aryanize everything and they set out with a mission like missionaries but that is not the thing these were just migrations which took place which took the languages away now languages usually leave their surrounding areas untouched even when they spread into distant areas we have the example of english almost the whole of australia new zealand canada and the usa are english speaking today almost the whole although other migrants from all over the world have gone there to usa especially while within britain itself you find scots gaelic i think it's almost extinct but it's there welsh and irish they still exist on the british isles now spain linguistically hispanicized the whole of central and south america practically except small places like perhaps british guyana and all where dutch guyana where other europeans have gone and brazil of course portugal portuguese is also practically like spanish now within spain you find this non indo european basque language which is found only in that small border area between spain and france in a small area i don't know if you have ever read in newspaper reports about uh, basque nationalists who want ba the basque area to become a separate nation i don't know how active they are now but such a thing has been a historical phenomenon in the last century so this basque language is completely distinct from all the other european languages because it belongs to the a language family all by itself out of all the language families in the world just like burushaski and andamanese and the ainu language to the north of japan which are single languages which alone constitute a language family now this basque language constitutes a language family and it is still there in spain now so how do you say that means that uh, spanish did not originate in spain and english did not originate in england because if it had why are there still non english and non spanish areas in those countries so you see even if you take steps as the um, original homeland in that are you going to search for the only uh, the indo european speaking area in that and draw a circle around it and say that is the homeland because in the steps you find the caucasian uralic and altaic languages all around them and again if the indo european spread all over the world why did they leave those people unaryanized if that is a argument now second the argument is that europe has so many branches india has only one indo aryan so how can it be that all those branches went out from india and only um, one branch remained in india so india can't be the homeland now you look at the dravidian family every single branch or language is found only in south india in the north you find brahui the external most uh, one which is spoken in baluchistan but now all the linguists including for example michael witzel 
Hans Hock and Southworth and all of them have accepted all those who are connected with this and who are supporters of the Aryan invasion theory. All of them have accepted that Brahui did not originate in Baluchistan. Formerly, it was cited as an example. See, see, the original people there were Dravidians because see, a Dravidian language Brahui is still spoken there. However, now all of them have accepted that this language in the last, uh, within the last 2000 years, it migrated from the south to that area. Similarly, in the within India to the east, in says uh, uh, in the Jharkhand and uh, Orissa, you find some tribal languages which are Dravidian, but they also are supposed to have migrated from the north, from the south to the north. So, if that is so, how is it that there is a theory which says that the Dravidian language family also came from outside India, from West Asia, where not a single branch or language has been discovered to this date? You know, this is not a uh, this thing between one language here, one branch here and seven or eight branches there. It is between all the branches in India and zero branches outside India. And yet there is this theory which no one really contests. They accept that, yes, yes, the Dravidian languages also came from out. So there you don't count the number of branches and where they are found. So you see, this logic is not used when uh, in, it is inconvenient to them. Now, the steppes have, have also have only one branch, Slavic. Whereas Europe to the west of the steppes has seven branches. Yet no one says the language is originated in Europe. They use this argument only against India, but in the steppes also only Slavic was spoken. Yet from the steppes, they are supposed to have spread everywhere. Now, actually in India, you see, it's not just one branch. It is one branch Indo-Aryan. But, you know, to, in the border areas, you have also Irani langu Iranian languages. That is, um, uh, the Baluchi the and uh, Pashto languages of Pakistan. They, are, they belong to the Iranian branch. And to the just to the north, on the borders, and uh, you find the Tokharian language, which is even referred to, the people are referred to in our Puranas and the ancient texts. So, you find actually these three branches. And plus... You have the Bangani language, which was discovered recently, which is a Kentum language. And not uh, re related to Tokharian. It is a separate Kentum language spoken in Uttarakhand. And finally, you have Sinhalese to the south of India, which also contains so many archaic elements and archaic words, which that originally it may have been a separate branch also. So you see, this has no uh, one branch thing has no kind of logic behind it. Then secondly, if you see Sino-Tibetan languages, they are supposed to have originated in China. But the greatest variety, greatest diversity of type, grammar, word, vocabulary and sound in Sino-Tibetan languages is in North India. Right from, you know, Le uh, Sikkim and all the Northeastern states. The Na Naga languages, the languages of Arunachal Pradesh and uh, of Assam, Meghalaya, whichever languages are Sino-Tibetan there. They have the widest diversity among Sino-Tibetan languages. Now, and finally, one more argument as per Johanna Nichols' path-breaking study. The she, in fact, cites this thing that there is a genetic diversity at the western periphery. She cites that as a proof that they went from the east. She says as they went, they got diversified into many branches. That is the way she puts it, that you find a 
accumulation of genetic diversity at the western periphery of the range so she uses it as an as an argument to show that those languages migrated westwards from central asia so you see in no way is this an argument against india being the original homeland now the third one now language is actually spread out generally in one direction rather than from a central area now you all can read all this uh, as conrales has repeatedly pointed out everywhere in the world you find that languages usually move in one direction they don't uniformly spread out you know they don't decide like trinvantor vishwamaryam some people say that means let us go out and aryanize the world it's not like that it's so similarly these people didn't decide you know we'll go everywhere any language the speakers just naturally migrate into other areas now russian spread from kiev eastwards arabic spread from arabia northwestwards into the whole of north africa and northwards you the original languages of palestine and all were not arabic syria iraq it is from saudi arabia this arabic language has spread there then the bantu languages of africa from west africa they spread out into southeastern all the southeastern areas of africa now similarly if you see the american indian languages they are all supposed to have you know supposed to have migrated from siberia 10000 years ago over the bering straits into the alaska from there they spread into an uninhabited american continent north america and south america and today it has a wide variety of branches or uh, types sub families but not one of those is found in siberia or in asia all are found in america so all of them migrated from the north east of siberia into america and spread out right to the southernmost tip of america but they did not spread out anywhere in asia in fact they died out even in their original area now uh, uh taiwan uh, taiwan uh, uh, according to conradels is the area where chinese family supposed to have originated now as, as he says this exp expansion in all direction never takes place anywhere else why are you using it as an argument to argue against india and now we come to the fourth argument now this is really a fraudulent argument because you find people who make this argument they argue otherwise when it comes to other things now indo aryan and european languages generally have common names for plants and animals which are found in both india and europe now you know if uh, people from australia let us suppose australian aboriginals had come and settled down somewhere somewhere in say some uh, jungles of maharashtra 1000 2000 years ago there are no uh, this um, there are no kangaroos in maharashtra so whatever word they used for kangaroos would have died out after some time because there are no kangaroos here or else they would have used that word for some other animal and then how do you know what was the original meaning of that word whether that other animal was the original word or the kangaroo was the original animal named by that word and this point has been made by uh, mallory also in one of his books he says that uh, there are he points out all this thing about trying to find out which was the original animal referred to by a certain word now so generally you know in india you find names only for indian animals and plants 
in europe you find names only for european animals and plants because whatever else may have been there has died out in the course of time in spite of this general rule this is the general logical rule but in spite of that you find that european languages actually have preserved names for indian animals not found in europe this is something they completely ignore for example ape the sanskrit word is kapi the greek word is kepos and according to a large number of linguists including gamkaralitze for example even the english word ape and the germanic words like ape uh, german dutch whatever they are also related to this with by dropping the k then the leopard you find sanskrit pridaku used for the leopard greek pardos persian fars and hittite parshana four distinct languages all of which have a word for leopard now in the case of these two you can argue that apes were found outside india also leopards are also found outside india so it does not necessarily show india but then you have the elephant or ivory elephants are found only in india and southeast asia southeast asia does not enter into the indo european debate at all and they are found in africa equatorial africa now you find that all the indo european languages have a common word for elephant and ivory now elephants can't be taken by people on long migrations so ivory was a very important object even in the harappan civilization it was one of the most uh, important exports export items i have given this in great detail in my article on elephants so now you you find sanskrit ibha greek erepa or elephas from which you get elephant latin ebur and hittite lapa now all of these come from the root rub or lub which means to grab or to grasp with the hand with the fingers now so it has the same etymology as the sanskrit word hastin which means hand the animal with a hand so it is the animal which grab grasps things with its trunk now rub from the root rub or lub you get the word ribha or libha and you will see that all these different words can be directly derived from this word ribha by dropping r becomes ibha ribha becomes erepa or libha becomes elephas ebur is actually a, a metathesis of the word like you know people say uh, i know in my, my class for example in school many uh, goan catholics used to say ax to say ask i don't know why the only they used to say that but so you see there's a transposition of sounds so the same thing has happened here an original word ergu which will obviously come from ribha has become ebur and finally the hittite word lapa also is clearly derived from lab libha so all these have a common etymology and india is the only indo european language speaking area which has elephants so here you see that argument actually proves the indian homeland now now uh, this argument when they say firstly we see that actually the european languages have indeed taken indian words with them indian animal words like elephant is a word which absolutely clinches the case for the out of india theory but another point is that the indo european languages of europe and west asia had left 4000 to 5000 years ago and they did not leave in one leap and bound they left after a long sojourn in the northwestern border border areas of india 
they moved from Pakistan areas to Afghanistan, from Afghanistan to Central Asia, and then they moved out, and not in a day or a year or long periods of time. And in those areas, they could already have lost the names for animals and plants of the interior areas of India, as well as the distinction between dentals and cerebrals, which is the argument these people make. Now, you see the gypsy languages or Romani language. It actually belongs to the Indo-Aryan branch. No one denies it. Means those other languages are belong to other 11 branches, which were to the West. But this Romani language actually belongs to the Indo-Aryan branch. And everyone accepts. Like Vidzel himself has pointed out that they migrated from India just over a thousand years ago. So a full India, you know, post-Mauryan, post-Buddhist India. And from the interior of India, they migrated. And yet, they have also not preserved a single name for an Indian plant or animal. Not even ape, leopard or elephant, which you find in the European languages. And they went just 1000 years ago from inside India. And they also have not taken the distinction between dental and cerebral sounds, which was certainly there right from Vedic times all over India. So what does one conclude about the level of intelligence and level of honesty of these scholars who put forward such childish arguments? And, you know, there is a big uh, crowd of fans who quote them and say, Vidjal has said this or someone else has said this. Or, or big scholars have said this. And so they also quote these silly arguments. Now we come to the next one. This is so far as all those four arguments are concerned. As you see, all, none of them really apply at all. Now we come to linguistic paleontology. Now, the oldest arguments for the out of Aryan invasion theory are based on the reconstruction of the geographical environment of the original homeland on in the basis of common words found in distant and distinct languages. Like if you find a common word for some animal or plant in India and you find it in Germanic, then it means that wherever these people were together, that animal was there. Now, if you find a common word for father, mother, tree, that shows nothing because obviously wherever you are living in the world, you will be having a word for that in your language. So it does not show you the geographical location. But for geographically restricted animals or plants or other things, this language, linguistic paleontology is very important. Now, throughout from the beginning of this debate, when the Aryan invasion theory was concocted, before that, you know, they thought that uh, Sanskrit is the original language and all these uh, European ancestors went from India. That was the first theory. So believe it or not, the out of India theory was the first theory which the Europeans had mooted. But afterwards, they discovered, where, as research showed them that Sanskrit was not the original language. Then they started searching for some other homeland. And then this is the argument that they made. These are the arguments they made based on linguistic paleontology. Now, first, there is the salmon argument. Now, they say salmon is a fish which is found only in rivers which flow into the Atlantic and Baltic seas. And there is a common word for them in the Indo-European languages. So, first is salmon. Second, I am giving this quotation of Dienz. He says that Proto-Indo-European languages had words for certain flora and fauna. He names bears and beech trees are well-known examples. So here you have bears and beech trees. He says by plotting the natural environment of these flora and fauna, you find that the Proto-Indo-European homeland was in a temperate zone. 
India is a tropical zone. So temperate zone is the homeland. And from then they move to the steppes. Now, this is what Vidjal says. Generally, the proto-Indo-European plants and animals are those of the temperate climate. And words such as those for wolf and snow indicate linguistic memories of a colder climate. So here you have five things. Salmon, bears, beech trees, wolf and snow, which they specif specifically point out as clues. Now let us see them one by one. Firstly, the Salman argument. Now this Salman argument, uh, next, next please. Now the Salman argument has been basically abundant. Generally, people agree that it is a weak argument and they based on conjectures and speculation. Now they have reconstructed a word locks as the original word for the Salman. It is reconstructed from Germanic, Baltic and Slavic words which are all you will see in the north of Europe. And then you have Armenian and Ossetic words. Armenian is, you know, in the Caucasus mountains and Ossetic is also in West Asia towards that same, in that same area. They, they have a similar word for the trout, which is a different uh, fish altogether. And in Tokharian, you have a word for fish, any fish, not necessarily salmon. So you see, it is used for salmon only in the Germanic, Baltic and Slavic languages of Northern Europe, where, as they say, the rivers flow into the Atlantic and the Baltic seas. So, uh, but then they also try to connect the Sanskrit words laksha, which means lack. And the word laksha meaning lack. Lack, the first lack, of course, means the number lack. That is a hundred thousand. That they say is uh, because you know the salmons are breed so fast that when you look in the river, you will see them in huge numbers. So that's why this word in indicates a fish which is huge in number, which are numerous in number when you look at them in the river. So that's how the word laksha is connected by them to that. And laksha is connected because lak is red in color. You know lak, the lak house of Mahabharata and of the laksha grah. So that lak, they claim, is red in color and the salmon is red. So that's why they named laksha as this. Now, laksha is a later word. It is not a Rigvedic word also. So how they could have remem remembered the salmon from the uh, Europe and then applied that word to that uh, material is a mystery. However, this weak argument is generally rejected nowadays. And from an OIT scenario, it could well be a general word for fish developed in Central Asia among the emigrated branches, all of which, you know, were in Afghanistan and Central Asia for a period of time. And so that is why the Tokharan language retains the original meaning of fish. Afterwards, when they migrated further west, some of them transferred it to the most common fish of that area. And uh, which was the trout for the Armenian and Ossetic people. And it was the salmon for German, Baltic, Slavic people. So it is not really a strong argument and no one considers it so also now. Finally, beech. Now, beech trees are found only in Europe. And the so-called Proto-Indo-European word for beech tree is also found only in Europe. It is found in the five European branches, Italic, Celtic, Germanic, Baltic and Slavic. And even among them, the easternmost ones, Baltic and Slavic, seem to be borrowed from Germanic, according to Gamtrelizzi. Greek and Albanian have different words for beach because beach trees are found also in the Greek and Albanian areas, but they don't use this word. And the 
forms which seem to be derived from this word, reconstructed word bhako. It actually means the oak tree in Greece. But the main thing is that this word is totally missing in all the Asiatic branches. Anatolian, that is Hittite, Tokharian, Armenian, Iranian, and Indo-Aryan. And yet, it is a plant found only in Europe, a tree. Yet, this argument is still today being discussed since over a century. And it is being quoted as a proof that the temperate zone was the Indo-European homeland. Next, bears. This is the really the funniest thing because see, Europe proper has only one species of bear. That is the old world brown bear, Ursus arctos. And the polar bear is found, you know, in the polar regions. So maybe parts of Scandinavia also come into that. But in India, there are four species of bears. You have that old world brown bear of Europe also in India. You have the Himalayan black bear. You have the Malayan sun bear in Assam, in Assam and Manipur areas. And you have a specially Indian bear, the Indian sloth bear, the Bhalu, which you see on the streets. This is restricted to India and to the north of India on the borders of Tibet and China. In the parts of Tibet and China, you find the panda bear. So five species, actually, if you see four within India, one on its borders. And yet they say that this is a temperate zone animal, which the Indo-Europeans, uh, uh, Indo-Aryans, brought into India from Europe. And then the second point is that this, all the words for bear, the common word for bear, Proto-Indo-European, Ritkos is the word they have reconstructed. Vedic, Riksha, Avestan, Arsha, Greek, Arctos, Latin, Ursus, Old Irish, Art, Armenian, Ar, and Hittite, Hartaga. All of them are come, supposed to be derived from this root. But this root, Mallory Adams point out, is apart from this word, it is this root is found only in the Sanskrit words, rakshas, destruction, damage, the night demon, etc. Protection, you know, raksha, rakshas, rakshas. All these words, there's a big uh, category of words which comes from this root. Whereas in all those other branches, no other word comes. This is an isolated word with no root, no uh, explanation for where that word came from. So how does this name for bear prove that India, uh, the Indo-Aryans came from the temperate zone? And finally, the wolf, which Vidjal claims is as much a native of the, uh, it is found all over India. Wolf is a very common Indian animal. When Rudyard Kipling wrote his jungle book about Mowgli raised in the jungle by wolves, he's talking about an Indian boy raised in an Indian jungle by Indian wolves. Although he was actually his answer, I think he was born somewhere in India, but you know, his parents were Britishers. So he didn't, it, uh, when he wrote wolves in his story, it did not represent linguistic memories of British wolves as Witzel would suggest. And finally, the word for snow, which is also quoted by Witzel. Next word. Now, snow is found in India as much as in the Western areas. It's not that uh, India means only the area below the Vindhyas. It is includes the Himalayas. And as per the Encyclopedia Britannica, India has the largest area outside of the polar regions under permanent ice and snow. So can Indians be unacquainted with ice and snow? Now, yes, it is a fact that in Haryana, 
the uh, unless you move to for slightly further to the north into the himalayas you won't actually find ice and snow within aryana but in the rigveda it doesn't mean ice and snow it means winter connected to ice and snow but basically it means winter so it's not a linguistic memory because winter is a season in india also it's not a, not found in india so in marathi for example the word hiwala which means winter comes from this hymn and in four of the references the verses talk about the indian winter offering relief from the burning heat of the indian summer so there are no linguistic memories of europe here but it does mean hymn we know himalaya the abode of snow but it appears in the meaning of snow not as a linguistic memory it appears only twice in the new rigveda only in the new rigveda and only twice after the vedic aryans had expanded westwards past the punjab into afghanistan and the northwestern himalayas from their haryana homeland once it refers to the actually refers to the himalayas only as the snow covered mountains and secondly it, it refers to a weapon possibly made of ice both are in the new books so how does it represent a linguistic memory an indian phenomenon ice and snow referred to only in the new rigveda so clearly none of the words argued to indicate a non indian temperate homeland actually prove the ait or disprove the ait out of india theory and but the common words for the ape leopard and especially elephant and ivory show that the geographical environment of the proto indo european homeland was indian and that the migrating branches 5000 years ago had actually taken specifically indian words with them which even the romani gypsies did not do 1000 years ago so linguistic paleontology the most important and persistent linguistic argument of the old school actually proves the out of india theory and disproves the aryan invasion theory there is no word which by the with the help of linguistic paleontology you can prove the aryan invasion theory now we come to one very important and complicated uh, topic I means it is a bit technical so i don't know how well i will be able to explain it i hope uh, the listeners are able to understand what i'm saying now linguistic isoglosses are certain linguistic features which develop in a particular geographical area either grammar phonology or special vocabulary they can influence or extend to unrelated neighboring languages now india is the only place where you find this distinction between cerebral sounds and dental sounds that is tadanala and tadanala you find it all over india you find it in aryan languages dravidian languages austric languages and burushaski now so it is a isogloss which covers the whole of india isogloss means that area if you draw a border around the areas where this feature is found that border that area and that feature are all known as the isogloss now this sound all these cerebral sounds are found only in india of these the sound al a hindi person would not be able to pronounce it like in marathi for example kal kala means yesterday or it means period of time also kal no it means yesterday actually and kal kal with al means the period of time and in hindi both the words would be pronounced kal because the sound al is not there in that now this sound al is found not only in that in the it is found all in the dravidian languages 
and in neighboring languages that is konkani marathi gujarati and oriya but is missing in most of north india now i am told that it is also there somewhere in punjabi and rajasthani and all but basically it is not there in the two main north indian languages hindi in all its dialects and uh, maybe in rajasthani it is there i don't know and it is not found in bengali now and it is not found in sanskrit uh, later classical sanskrit though it is found in the rigveda as not just ara but ara also now there is another cerebral sound found only in tamil and malayalam so if you draw that border it will only cover the tamil nadu kerala areas of extreme south that sound is a third l just as in hindi you have only l in marathi for example you have l and ara in tamil and malayalam you have l ara and ara Uh, no, I cannot pronounce that word properly, but I'm sure Tamil and Malayalam speakers will know what I mean. For example, the word Tamil itself, what we call Tamil, it's actually Tamil with the third L. And Dravida Munnetra Kazagam is how you read it in an English paper. It's actually Dravida Munnetra Karagam, Karagam using that third L. So it's a very common sound in Tamil and Malayalam, but it is not found even in Kannada and Telugu. so that isoglos only cover the lower part of south india now another thing which i don't know how many of you are aware of this there are certain sounds called click sounds you know all the sounds that we use in our language vowels consonants whatever they are called explosives because you try to take in your breath and say those words you can't try to speak while taking uh, breathing in you can't do it you have to breathe out while you're talking so they are called explosives because the breath comes out and but there are click sounds are actually implosive sounds means even while breathing in you can do them like while talking you uh, while breathing in you can do you can do all these different click sounds but they are not part of the language they are not like consonants so the only languages in the world which have these sounds i believe one or two of those languages even have 10 different types of clicks which they can distinguish and those clicks are used in the language for example and uh, it is found only in the khoisan language family of south africa so if you can go on youtube and see click languages or you can see there are even songs and dialogues and some people explain what these clicks are and you see them talking all the time while they're talking you'll hear going on all the time so because that is part of their language and no outside that area it is totally unknown no other language family has it but it uh, mainly it is the different hottentot and bushman languages of south africa there is also i believe a sandawe and hadza two other languages now certain other languages in the area bordering on them like zulu khosa gichiriku and yei zulu all of you must have heard this name zulu tribesmen of south africa now their language has a borrowed a few clicks and a cushitic language called dahalo has also borrowed it so originally these are khoisan sounds which are borrowed by neighboring languages now another this thing if any one of you know marathi you will realize that there are no nasal vowels in marathi or in any of the dravidian languages the dravidian languages like a e u are non nasal sounds and a e u are nasal sounds now you find nasal sounds in gujarati hindi all the languages of north india kya kya che uh hu main hu so hu 
that that is the uh, nasal sound you find it in you don't find nasal so uh, vowels in any of the south indian languages now in marathi which is actually an indo aryan language but it is the one closest to the dravidian languages in that also it has been influenced by the dravidian languages so there are no nasal vowels in marathi except in sanskrit words which they use like hans house and they'll pronounce all that with a o sound like house siwa uh saushay sauhar saun lagna so they'll use that word like that that nasal sounds comes only in tatsam sanskrit words which are borrowed from sanskrit and you find it in four words jehwa kehwa tehwa means jab kab tab but even that you know in spoken language people say jawa kawa tawa you see in the uh, actual speakers and one number aishi which means 80 so except for these four words and the borrowed sanskrit words the nasal sounds are completely missing and there is no open nasal sound all these are closed nasal sound that is they are both sides of those sound you find consonants siuha jeuha so ha is not whereas if you see for example konkani language it is spoken even to the south of marathi it is spoken in goa coastal maharashtra and goes right up till half of coastal kerala but it has nasal sounds completely it is full of nasal sounds like i and you is ha tu and in fact the nasal sounds are phonemic that is they make a difference in the meaning like ha kaale ashile means these are black and ha kaale ashile means it is black so you see uh, konkani how did konkani escape this how, how is it retained the nasal sounds because according to history konkani came from the north and settled down there and marathi had already been influenced by the dravidian languages and lost its nasal sounds before that so you see the meaning of isoglosses now you will say this okay even if you have understood the meaning of isoglosses how does it help us to search for the original location of the homeland that is the point and actually it should not because see language change can take place anywhere it's not necessary it should take place in india or in the steppes or in uh, turkey or in europe language changes take place anywhere so whatever language linguistic features are there they can have taken place anywhere so why is this isoglosses a uh, subject of isoglosses important in locating the homeland now uh, what a, because there are 12 branches of indo european languages and these features are not found in all the branches some branches have some features some branches have uh, don't have them and there are different features found in different sets of branches so it's a very complicated thing so still how does it show us the homeland see uh, if you see what is the order of according to linguistic theory they can find out which branch left the homeland first because it does not share that feature like for example hittite everyone accept that hittite was the first branch to leave the homeland because the other 11 branches share a large number of very basic linguistic features which are not found in hittite which means that the original proto indo european language did not have those features when hittite was there but after hittite left 
that area those features developed in the original homeland and all the other 11 branches which remained there were influenced by that feature i don't know if i'm making myself clear uh i hope no, i you quite clear, sir. yeah now uh, on the basis of these isoglosses also they have discovered that the five branches which remained last in the homeland after all the other branches had left they share certain late features like uh, conjugation of the verb and all complicated structures which are missing in all the other seven branches and these five branches are indo-aryan iranian armenian greek and albanian and this shows that these five branches had remained in the homeland and developed these features after the migration of the other seven branches so you have these first branches hittite and tocharian you have these last branches indo-aryan iranian armenian greek and albanian and you have the five european branches in the middle italic celtic baltic germanic and slavic which are the middle branches so to say now according to hans hock who is supposed to be a very eminent linguist this uh, this not only shows which language left the homeland first but it also shows where the homeland is located it can show according to him in fact this hock has written this article very detailed article very points out that you know all these arguments about the original proto indo european language was like this it had these features but this language does not have these features so this area cannot be the homeland he says that has no sense because any feature can develop anywhere any feature can change anywhere so how much your reconstructed proto indo european language resembles the present language has no bearing on the location of the homeland and uh, now what he says is that if you see the out of india theory there can be two types of hypothesis there is the common and popular hindu feel, uh, belief that vedic sanskrit was the original language and all the other languages came from vedic sanskrit but he says that if you accept this as the out of india theory principle then it is impossible because it runs into so many difficulties because so many changes take place in language in uh, languages that it is impossible to show that vedic was the original language however if you say that okay whatever proto indo european language you have reconstructed that is the proto indo european language with some certain reservations but where is that language spoken you don't find records of this proto indo european language anywhere in the world so you cannot refute it you cannot say uh, proto you don't find proto indo european language in india you find vedic language which is a daughter language so the ancestral language is not found in india so india can't be the homeland you can't say that because it is not found in the steppes either it is not found in europe it is not found in hittite so that is not an argument to rule out a homeland so he says that any linguistic argument made does not necessarily negate the out of india theory so he is admitting this he says the only thing which negates is you circumstantial arguments based on plausibility and simplicity next and as in short there is no linguistic argument which proves the aryan invasion theory or disproves the out of india theory though it can only be done on the base of arguments based on plausibility and simplicity 
and the only argument he puts forward as clinching the aryan invasion theory case and disproving the out of india theory case is the argument based on the evidence of the isoglosses according to him the pattern of the isoglosses proves the aryan invasion theory and disproves the out of india theory see now we are getting into a bit technical or complicated ground but uh, i'll try to explain it now this is the case made by hock but hock's case is made up of flawed arguments and when you actually examine the actual evidence of the isoglosses as i have done in my book in 2008 chapter 7 it shows that the proto indo european in india hypothesis is the only hypothesis which explains all the isoglosses and all the existing linguistic facts and evidence in the debate now shared why is this what is the importance of shared isoglosses it shows that suppose two three branches have a common feature it can show that in the, now they are separately uh, found in different different areas and yet they have this common feature that proves that when they were together in the homeland these branches were neighboring each other that is the principle now branches sharing isoglosses has, must have been adjacent or geographically contiguous to each other in the original homeland now hock produces a map diagram to show that the present day relative geographical position of the branches is the same as the original position of the branches in the homeland means today if you see where the languages are spoken and then you see the isoglosses that you find that they are all spoken in areas closest to each other so he says that branches uh, for example all the branches which share an isoglos will be found only in the northwestern area of the present indo european world which proves that even in the homeland they were in a close area in the northwest part of the homeland next uh, to make this clearer now he says that if you arrange the 12 branches as they are today for example how how do you find the 12 branches today indo aryan and iranian are to the extreme southeast if you take a map of the world and you see where all the 12 branches are spoken today today meaning not america and all that but the historical areas like english you'll take for england etc you find that to the extreme east is indo aryan to the west of that in iran you find iranian to the west of that you find armenian to the west of that you find greek and to the west of that you find albanian then to the north you find tokharian in central asia in europe uh, you find hittite in turkey and the five european branches you find in europe now he says that if you see the common isoglosses and draw a circle around them see these four branches draw a circle around these four branches that this is the isoglos found in these four branches you can do it even in their present arrangement so what this means is that he claims that it was spoken in a central area from east central europe to eastern russia so if we accept that that was the homeland then all we need to assume is that the languages just maintained their positions to each other as they fanned out from the homeland means i don't know when you were small you must uh, people must have drawn Uh, in your drawing class you must have drawn a picture of the sun 
you just draw a circle and then you draw lines coming out in all directions from it like the spikes from a mace now so that's what he says that this is the original homeland all the branches were there and then they just spread out in different directions from wherever wherever they were so that whichever languages were in certain positions to each other in the homeland even after they spread out they were still in the same position to each other so he says that can be possible only in a central homeland in south uh, uh, in the steppes however if you say out of india theory that they originated in india and they went out of india then it becomes impossible he says because how would they go out of india like they don't move out like the rays of the sun from a central area they all crowd together to the uh, bottleneck this thing he says given the bottleneck nature of the roots out of india they could not maintain the same position to each other during and after the migration means something which was at the south may uh, manage to be at the north of the uh, group of branches as they move so it would be extremely difficult for them to maintain the same geographical uh, pattern and or else you have to assume that they went out in a bunch and after they went out and spread everywhere again they went in the same positions as before so that he says is unbelievable so i'll explain it by a uh, analogy now see his case would have been it is a very good argument if it were a honest argument now at this point i want to say something today conrad has told me you don't question the honesty of hawk because uh, you know he's a very uh, sincere scholar and uh, if you attack them personally like this then it is difficult to make them accept or to consider what we are saying but i don't think you know that uh, by using sweet language we can get them to consider what we are saying and it is a fact that his case is not honest so i'm going to call it dishonest although i'm sure conradels would not approve of it still here it is now suppose the dravidian languages had migrated out from india and then settled down all over europe or africa a very hypothetical situation now inside india where do you find the dravidian languages in the you find for, firstly in the north and in the south that is the first division in the north you find brahui in the northwest that is baluchistan and you find kuruk and malto in the northeast that is jharkhand and orissa that area in the south the southernmost belt of tamil and malayalam you find tamil in the southeast and malayalam in the southwest then to the north of that there is a central belt of kannada and tulu in the west in karnataka and tulu is in the southwestern corner of this belt it is in mangalore the southern coast of karnataka and telugu is in the east now suppose all these languages in ancient times had migrated out of india through the northwest and then settled down in large part of africa europe or africa would they have again realigned in the same pattern means tamil to the southeast malayalam to the southwest etc obviously they would not they would have landed up in different areas with no connection to their position within india right whereas if they were in a central area they would have just migrated outwards wherever they were and their relative positions would have remained the same but if they had moved out of india through the bottleneck routes leading out of india and then again realigned outside india in different different areas it would not have uh 
you would not have been able to show that closed branches have the same isoglosses. Now, next. Um, but Hawke's case is not an honest one. Why? Because firstly, he pointedly excludes from his arrangement one crucial branch, Tokharian. He says it is difficult to find dialectal affiliation for it. It's not difficult. But he claims it and then excludes it because it is inconvenient for his thesis. Then, now Tokharian shares certain important isoglosses with Anatolian, Hittite and Italic. Now, I'll show the next thing I'll show you. Uh, you'll see that Tokharian, Italic and Hittite are at different uh, uh, corners of the Indo-European world today. So if they have common isoglosses, then they can't have just moved out from that this thing and shared those isoglosses in the common homeland. Even in the common homeland, they would have been in opposite corners of that homeland. So in no way can Hittite, Tokharian and Italic be shown to be sharing these isoglosses with each other in the homeland. And then, as he puts it, maintaining their relative positions to each other as they fanned out from the centrally located homeland. So Hock simply ignores these isoglosses and excludes Tokharian from his arrangement and crosses his fingers in the hope that no one notices. He just says Tokharian can't be taken. Now look at his, uh, this is the exact diagram he shows in his uh, paper or book. Now you see, in this diagram, if you see, you'll see Indo-Aryan, this is India, to the west is Iran, to the west is Armenia, and further west is Greece. Hittite is to the south of this belt, it is in Turkey, which is to the uh, south of the Armenian Greek belt. To the north of India, you find Tokharian. And then you find all the European branches in the west. You see them all. Now, you see how he has drawn a very neat diagram so that you can draw these circles and squares and other showing that all the branches, you know, like, for example, see, Greek, Armenian, Iranian and Indo-Aryan, there's a big black uh, square in which they are included. So they share so many uh, isoglosses with each other. And this, he says, actually Greek, Armenian, Iranian and Indo-Aryan are not neighboring languages today or even in the historical period. And yet they share these isoglosses. But if you arrange them on this diagram, you see that they are the closest branches to each other. So he says this proves that they were the closest branches even in the original homeland, when they were together. And they just spread out, you know, from that central area, they migrated in all directions, maintaining that relationship to each other. So, uh, all these circles of his see very neatly, you know, they, there are no other intersecting branch, uh, branches which come in the middle of all his uh, circles and uh, dotted lines and all that. So, very neatly he shows, and below he gives the list of the isoglosses, which he's indicating in this diagram. And he says, see very neatly, see how it all shows that the present geographical distribution of these 12 branches explains all the isoglosses, which means that in the original homeland also, they were in the same relative positions to each other. And that would be possible only in a step homeland from which they, you know, migrated out like the rays of the sun. Whereas in an Indian homeland, while going out, they would have all got mixed together. You know, they wouldn't have been moving in the same relative positions. And after moving out, they would again have realigned in different positions. So it can't be an Indian homeland. That is his 
clinching argument now uh, any one of you can after go back and look at this chart again and then uh, go through the whole thing i am trying to explain it in uh, short as much as possible now the fact is that hawk leaves out a very large number of important isoglosses if you see that chart again you will see that four of them you know are just one isogloss for which he has given four titles just go back one second and i'll show you uh to that uh, chart see you find that last four tt becomes stents tt becomes stents and he shows us four things all those four are just one sound t plus t how it develops in four different groups so the total number of isoglosses he is showing are really very few and actually there are many many isoglosses now next again now and each of these isoglosses links together branches which are at distant geographical locations and could not have been spoken in contiguous areas in the original homeland so he ignores all those isoglosses he completely ignores the tocharian branch and even in the other 11 branches isoglosses which don't fit into his arrangement are just excluded or ignored or stonewalled and he manages to prove the ait and disprove the oit and all other linguists like witzel and all praise him and point out see he has conclusively proved but in my book i have shown that in the chapter as i said completely shown how all the isoglosses proven indian homeland now see what what is the main thing it cannot be possible his paradigm that it was in a central located area and then all the branches spread out in all directions that is impossible because hittite was the first branch to separate completely from the rest and all the other elon branches developed together certain very fundamental features in common which are missing in hittite so much so that many linguists say it should not be called indo european this family should be called indo hittite with two main branches one branch is only hittite and the second branch contains 11 sub branches that is all the other 11 they place together and hittite they place separately this is the extent to which hittite is you know has missed out on isoglosses which are common to all the other branches so any isogloss gloss shared by hittite with some but not all of these other branches can't have been formed in the homeland so when can hittite have formed isoglosses with the other branches they could have been formed only outside this homeland suppose from this homeland as in the indian homeland you know they move out of that bottleneck and as they are moving out hittite is there so when they settle down next to hittite these branches develop isoglosses in common with hittite and this happens even uh, with who languages which don't originally have common isoglosses can develop them for example again i'll go back to a indian situation today there is one more isogloss that are different between the consonants ch ch and s you know in marathi there is the word you say tyatsa not tyatcha whereas a hindi person pronouncing it uh, or even a gujarati person pronouncing it will say tyacha he won't say tyatsa and this thing this distinction between s and ch is not found in hindi gujarati etc etc it is found only in two indo aryan languages marathi and konkani and it is found in two dravidian languages neighboring them it is found in telugu 
and it is found in the northern dialects of karnataka not in the southern dialects also so you see there is an if you draw a border around the chacha area you find it covers maharashtra goa northern karnataka and andhra pradesh so and two of these languages are indo aryan languages two are dravidian languages which were originally different and yet they have developed this isogloss in common because they were settled close to each other and so much so that uh, in konkani there is a cochin dialect which is spoken deep inside kerala away from this isogloss area and the konkani spoken in cochin loses this distinction between cha and cha they will only say cha and ja they won't say cha cha ja ja they will only have cha and ja so you see isoglosses can be influenced by other neighboring dialects even if originally they were not formed jointly so what happened here is that hittite developed isoglosses with other branches as they were moving out of that exit point where hittite was already there so for this it is impossible that they can maintain their relative positions to each other as they fan out from a centrally located homeland but if there are two homeland parts original homeland and secondary homeland what happens is that all are originally in the original homeland then they move out from that original homeland into a secondary homeland and there they develop certain isoglosses in different points of time it's not necessary that they all develop within the original homeland itself but they develop within the original and secondary homeland and in fact the five european branches after they had separated from all the others they developed isoglosses of their own which are not found in the other seven branches later and indo-aryan and iranian developed certain isoglosses which are not found in the other branches because they remained together after separating from the others so you see isoglosses keep forming at different stages it's not only the original homeland now now dialects exiting from the original homeland clearly exited into a neighboring area which functioned as a secondary homeland outside the exit point of the original homeland now if you take a step homeland theory or you take a anatolian homeland theory where will you locate this original homeland and secondary homeland whereas in the out of india theory and it is recorded remember it is not based on leon speculation the what i have written right from my very first book in 93 when i had not studied the isoglosses based on what the puranas and rigveda what is the situation that they show it explains that the area from haryana to afghanistan is the original homeland where first they spread out and covered this area and developed various isoglosses and central asia represents the secondary homeland now indian historical tradition and the rigveda jointly record that the druyus migrated westwards from the punjab into afghanistan in the pre rigvedic period and later they migrated outwards in stages into central asia and beyond secondly the anus migrated westward from the punjab into afghanistan in the early rigvedic period and later they spread out and migrated westwards in stages so two streams of migrations and the common area is of course afghanistan with neighboring central asia now let us see what gamkarl says in his massive magnum opus indo european and indo europeans he sketches out how the see we have seen how the puranas show this geographical lo location of these two primary and secondary homelands 
Now Gamkaral is he sketches out the linguistic scenario as follows. He says there were two major dialect areas. Area A, where you have Hittite, Tocharian, Italic, and Celtic, and Area B, where you have Indo-Iranian, Greek, Balto, Slavic, and German, Germanic. Now these two dialect areas functioned independently. So structural innovations appeared in Area A. which united all of its dialects in opposition to those of area b and vice versa likewise in area b several isocrosses affect the entire area okay so he is given these two areas area a and area b but area b is also divided into two distinct sub areas of more stable dialect groups in which indo iranian greek and armenian form one group and balto slavic germanic form a second group see he does not count albanian because albanian is usually ignored by most people for the simple reason that it has been recorded at a very late date this branch and mixed with other uh, influenced by other languages and uh, so they generally ignore this but albanian also comes in the same group as indo iranian greek and armenian because it shares the same isoglosses now so here you get these three groups which he says now if you see in my books i have shown according to the linguists the first branch to migrate was hittite that is anatolian second was tocharian third was italic and fourth was celtic so what this area a and area b shows what does it show area a you find the first four branches which migrated out so which means area b is the original homeland from which these four branches migrated out into area a because the first four branches to migrate out are found in area a of gamkralize and all the rest are found in area b but in area b also he finds two groups one of them is indo iranian greek and armenian and albanian which he doesn't mention which are the five last branches and you also find baltic slavic and germanic which are the middle branches of the european branches so here you see a clear thing that the five european branches in his uh scheme are divided between area a and area b in area a you find italic and celtic which are european branches and in area b you find the branches which later migrated like germanic baltic and slavic so very clearly his diagram although he doesn't put it like that he puts that whole thing as one homeland but actually it is this you get the same picture of an original homeland and a secondary homeland where area b is the original homeland area a is the secondary homeland where the branches are slowly migrating and settling down and in this uh -huh, now uh, he also points out that sometimes very rarely some isogloss which develops in one area area b a could spill over into the adjacent part of area b and vice versa he gives that a structural trait can spread across that boundary to affect a region at some distance on the other side and he sets out the general linguistic schedule of formation of the indo-european isoglosses as the dialects went out from the homeland he is giving this general scheme wherever that homeland is situated whether it is situated he does not uh, give the exact area that this is turkey this is greece this is wherever that homeland is situated on the basis of the isoglosses he tells us 
the two areas and the branches which are found in that area now as we will see right from the first step of identifying the exact geographical locales of areas a and b and the two main sub areas of area b only the indian homeland explains all these things because if you say turkey which is what gamkral is trying to push or if you see the common step homeland theory which where is area a and area b where will you locate them there next so gamkral is area b represents the original homeland area from haryana to afghanistan and the two sub areas is haryana punjab where you find indo iranian till the end and afghanistan where you find that germanic baltic and slavic and his area a represents the secondary homeland in central asia now his division clearly represents the stage when in that order hittite tokharian italic and celtic had already migrated into central asia from afghanistan while the baltic slavic and germanic branches who formed the rear guard of this druhu migration northwards was still in the south along with the five last branches now an examination of the different isoglosses uh, presents us with the stages now in my book i have shown six stages so here i will just mention those six stages in the first stage the hittite branch had migrated into central asia now the other 11 branches acquired the following features which are totally missing in hittite and they are very fundamental features of the language that is the feminines are formed see these are technical terms no you all will not understand it i myself do not understand most of them but they are the ones which the linguists have classified as the isoglosses first is this and gamkralidze i have taken all of them from mainly from gamkralidze's book and some others now feminines in a e and u the instrumental plural ois in independent deictic demonstrative pronouns demonstrative pronouns and if the laryngeal theory is right they also lost the laryngeal sounds that is according to the laryngeal theory the proto indo european language had certain sounds which are called laryngeal sounds which are written in alphabet as h1 h2 s3 h4 but originally they had a theory that there must have been laryngeal sounds because you cannot connect the words in two different branches unless you assume that some other sound was there in between which caused this change and when they discovered hittite they found that it actually represents those laryngeal sounds in its uh the alphabet so if uh, they concluded that the uh, the original language had laryngeal sounds and after hittite went out from the homeland all the other languages lost that laryngeal sound hittite alone retained this ancestral sound now at stage 2 the tokharian branch also moved northwards into area a now all the other historical dialects of indo aryan indo european if you exclude hittite and tokharian they all have common features of mythology religion technology and culture which are missing only in these two branches so those features developed after these two branches had moved into the north next now in stage 3 italic and celtic in that order also exited into central asia where anatolian was already there and in the west and tokharian in the east now 
this is the most important stage in which the major divisions took place and in fact it is this stage which gamkaralitse portrays portrays when he divides the homeland into two major dialect areas a and b because the dialects in area a are the five last branches and germanic baltic slavic and the languages in area b are hittite tokharian italic and celtic now see all these things are too technical and uh, i agree they are rather heavy and tedious to understand but when you go over the thing again and again you will realize what exactly is being said and what it means now the dialects in area a developed following features now you look at them you see tokharian anatolian italic and celtic have developed these features which is impossible in a step homeland with them all migrating out in different directions see anatolian tokharian and italic if you see that uh, uh, diagram again you will see that these three languages anatolian tokharian and italic are at three opposite corners of the present indo european uh, distribution of branches but in the homeland they must have been close to each other because they have developed these common isoglosses and where could they have developed it obviously in area a after they moved from uh, afghanistan into central asia so you find these four um this thing uh, isoglosses now phrygian or armenian in area b may also have acquired the last of the above isoglosses now this is some people dispute it and some don't but i have already pointed out that some isoglosses according to gamkarilidze can move across the border area into the bordering language of the next area so you find phrygian armenian has got this middle zen r which is found in anatolian tokharian italic and celtic all the four branches to the north so it must have spread across the border into armenian phrygian now next in um, dialects in area b, uh, b again in this same stage 3 those i showed what developed in area a now in area b all the dialects developed all these now which are the dialects the five last branches germanic uh, baltic and slavic so eight branches are there now all these eight branches develop these features then in area b part 1 germanic baltic and slavic develop, develop these three features i won't go name each of them because uh, they are too technical for you to understand you have to look at them you can't understand if i read out what is there next and and all the dialects in area b2 that is albanian armenian greek iranian and indo aryan the five last branches remember these are the five last branches they developed all these uh the isoglosses now uh, in case you have not understand what all these isoglosses come one of them you will understand the prohibitive negation may now what is that what is a prohibitive negation you say na in all the indo european languages the negative word is na no niyat no nahi na nahi etc but there is a prohibitive negation when you tell someone come here go there and then the negative you say don't come here don't go there so that don't is the prohibitive negation now in all these five dialects a uh, five branches albanian armenian greek iranian and 
Vedic Indo Aryan. The prohibitive negation is not no, it is may. The word may is used in all these five branches, but it is completely missing in the other seven branches. Like uh, you'll say, ma, ma karishyati or something. What I mean, I uh, I can't tell you what exactly. To say don't, you'll use the word ma in Sanskrit. Ma. It's the same in Iranian. It is the same in Albanian, Armenian, and Greek. But it is not so in Germanic, uh, Baltic, Slavic, Hittite, Tocharian, etc. Only these five last branches develop these isoglosses. Now, uh, ma in Sanskrit, you will see that it is found today only in the Western dialects of Hindi. Mat. You will say mat jao. That mat word is, comes from this me. Whereas in the Eastern dialects, for example, in Bihar and all, you won't say mat jao, you'll say na jao. Na jao. So you see this mat word, which is found in all these five branches, it has been re retained only in the Hindi, Western Hindi dialects. And probably, uh, I don't know about Punjabi, you'll know whether you use the word mat in that. But um, all the other branches, it has been lost. In Hindi, we know very well mat is the word, is the prohibitive negative word derived from me. Now, so you see how important, uh, now I have just, in my book, I have shown six uh, diagrams like this on the lines of uh, what Hawk <laughs> uh, himself has shown. Now this is stage three. So you see now, you can see on the map, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then Central Asia above that. Now you see Indic branch was towards the east. To the west, you find this line of Armenian, Phrygian, Iranian, Greek, and Albanian. To the further west, you find this Germanic, Baltic, Slavic. See, it, Anatolian, Hittite has already migrated north and settled down in the western part. Tokharian has settled down in the eastern part. And this line that you see, like a route going up, that is the path by which the five European branches migrated one after the other northwards and westwards towards Europe. So here you see uh, in this map, which is stage three, Italic and Celtic only have migrated up into Central Asia. The others are still down. And they are developing all these isocrosses with Anatolian and Tokharian. And Armenian Phrygian is the northernmost here. So that participates in one of those, as I showed, it also shares one of those. Now, only thing I would correct this diagram is that, uh, you know, I have shown these Armenian, Phrygian, Iranian, Greek, and Albanian slightly to the west. Actually, they should be more in the center of Afghanistan, that line. So I had done this in uh, 13 years ago, actually, in my 2008 book. So uh, otherwise, this diagram explains the thing perfectly. Only that line from Armenian, Phrygian to Albanian should be further east in Pakistan, where they remain till the last stage. So uh, I, I'm not showing all the six diagrams here. You'll get the general idea. In this sea, Italic and Celtic have moved north. In the next stage, Germanic moves into Central Asia, while Italic and Celtic have moved further north. It's like a belt shifting upwards. And then Baltic and then Slavic, they move north. So only these five branches are left in the south. And then the four western ones move out from the south itself through Iran. They move to the west. And Indic alone is left in India. Now, next. Um, uh, now, in stage four, Germanic has also exited into area A. And now you find the area A and area B 
where italic celtic and germanic develop certain isoglosses when they are together and the dialects in area b that is the five last branches and baltic and slavic develop certain other things which are missing in germanic which has now moved north next uh, next uh, stage 5 uh, stage 4 2 now certain words peculiar to the rigveda and the avesta are found outside Euro indo iranian only in slavic or baltic and slavic like the word krishna shava which means white krishna which means black bhaga which means god or fire you find them only in indo aryan iranian and slavic then also the root druh in baltic and slavic means a friend whereas in iranian and indo aryan it means enemy droh uh, droh means uh, being against something or someone vidroh droh and druhyu from that word so the baltic and slavic have the word in the positive sense of friend whereas iranian and indo aryan have it in the negative sense and gamkralitsi also refers to lexical evidence that is plenty of words which are closely found in the languages of armenian indo iranian and balto slavic that is all the other branches germanic italic celtic don't share these words so this is in this stage 4 when only baltic and slavic were in the south finally in stage 5 baltic also moved northwards only slavic was left in area b and they developed these two isoglosses in stage 5 and finally stage 6 now slavic had also exited into area a and then in along with now it has moved into the area of hittite and tocharian and now it develops certain isoglosses you see each of the european languages as they move into that area of central asia they develop isoglosses with tocharian and hittite which are there for a long time in central asia now these are the isoglosses there in area b the oldest books of the rigveda were being composed in this period and the battle of the 10 kings had started the exodus of the major anu iranian groups from the greater punjab into afghanistan so all these groups after this uh, stage 6 they started moving westwards from a southern route the druhus had moved to the north and westwards these moved to westward from the south from uh, afghanistan itself they moved south they didn't move into central asia now Uh, there are two isoglosses actually which armenian and phrygian belonging to area b shares with the languages of area a out of these last five dialogues dialect uh, last five branches so that shows that it was the one which was closest to the border with area b and this is it had those traits which gamkralitsi refers to and that is why because they were in the center you find this is the word which is found in every indo european tradition the word frigge the frigians because vedic bhrugu greek phlegoi celtic brigid germanic bragi see celtic and germanic are the earliest branches going out among these european branches and um, uh, greek and vedic see celtic and italic had gone right in the beginning after that germanic went whereas vedic and uh, uh, greek remained in the south so all these uh, have the word frigge in them so that shows that they, these frigians armenians must have been somewhere between area a and area b now um this i have already explained how these two sub areas have developed different dialect uh, different isoglosses now it will be said that the, uh, it will be seen that the complex relations of the 12 branches 
are impossible in hoc scenario where all the isoglosses developed within the homeland and then they just moved out it's impossible however it is possible only in our scenario where there is a original and secondary homeland it fulfills the what is given in the puranas and what we see from the rigveda it fulfills the linguistic model that gumtree lexia has given and it explains all the isoglosses in geographical perspective not just in the air actually it shows which is area a which is area b and where did the isoglosses develop and as i said it is not based on conjecture but recorded history from the rigveda and avesta which i have given in detail in my books now our scenario also explains the complete absence of any isoglosses connecting the first branches and the last branches you know hittite and tocharian have no isoglosses at all with indo-aryan and iranian why is this because they are the first two which went to the north and indo-aryan and iranian are the two which remain to the south till the very end that is in the historical period iranian moved into central asia and even right up till europe but in the formative period of the branches indo-aryan and iranian remained in afghanistan central asia punjab and all that whereas hittite and tocharian had right in the beginning gone into the north so they were never in contact with each other direct contact there were all those other branches in between them so the five area european branches have isoglosses with the last branches as well as with the first branches why because they were moving from the area of the last branches into the area of the first branches and they when they were in the low, uh, south they developed isoglosses with the last branches when they went into the north they developed isoglosses with hittite and tocharian and uh, then they moved into europe so hoc scenario completely uh, uh, completely uh, fails to explain the isoglosses so the, uh, if you say they maintain their position to each other as they find out from the homeland it is impossible because see uh, uh, hittite is found in the south of the indo european belt tocharian is found to the east and italic and celtic are found to the west so there is no way that they could have developed the uh, isoglosses in the homeland now there is also a linguist linguistic clue which fits into our this thing amazingly it is not just uh, the isoglosses see this word now as per the aryan invasion theory proto indo european in the steppes borrowed the word for wine from proto semitic to its south in west asia via the caucasus you know wine it developed uh, from grapes formation of wine uh, growing mm -hmm. of wine and, uh, this culture of uh, wine uh, growing wine and making wine it developed in west asia now the word for wine is borrowed by proto indo european from proto semitic so they use this an, as an argument to show that proto indo european was in the steppes proto semitic was in west asia and through the caucasus mountains these words and the culture of wine making passed from the semitic people to the indo europeans mm -hmm. however the facts prove exactly the opposite now you see the borrowed word for wine is found in all the nine western branches all the nine and they are 
not belong to one category. See the first branch Hittite, it is found to the west in Turkey. The five European branches which are found in Europe and the three last branches, Albanian, Greek and Armenian, which are found in West Asia and further west. But the word for wine is not found in all the three eastern branches. That is first branch Tokharian and the two last branches Iranian and Indo-Aryan. So if it was borrowed in, in the steps, why is it only all the nine western branches retained this word and the three eastern branches didn't? This proves that this word was not developed in the homeland. It was, uh, it was not borrowed by the uh, Indo-Europeans from the Semitic people in the homeland. It was borrowed on the way when they were migrating out of that homeland. And all of them passed the Semitic areas from east to west. So only the branches which passed the Semitic areas, the nine branches, they acquired this word, whereas the three eastern branches which never crossed the Semitic areas and never came into them, they um, did not get this word. And not only that, now we have seen that there are three categories of branches. The first branches, Hittite and Tokharian, the middle branches, that is the five European branches, and the last branches, five last branches. Now, the nine branches of the West, which have borrowed this word, belong to all the three categories. But all of them have borrowed a different form of the word from Semitic. They did not borrow the word at the same time. They borrowed the word at different times. The first branch, Hittite, has borrowed the form Viono. This is all in Gamkarelidze's book, if you can see. The five mm -hmm. European branches, which are the middle branches, borrowed the word Veino. And the three last branches, that is Albanian, Greek and Armenian, borrowed the word Voino. Because, you know, they passed the Semitic area at three different points of time from three different areas. So they borrowed different forms of that word. And the three branches which were in the east never borrowed that word. So this not only proves that the homeland was in the east, but it also proves the three different migrations westward of the first of Hittite, which moved into Central Asia and then from around the Caspian Sea, it migrated into Turkey, which was influenced by the Semitic. The second was the European branches, which passed from Central Asia through Siberia and the steppes into Europe. And the last three branches, which passed from Iran through West Asia into Southern Europe. All three borrowed three different forms of that word. All right. So obviously today we are going to be stopping at this part. Uh, next time when we continue our presentation, we're going to be starting further ahead from the latter half of the uh, presentation made by Shrikanji, which is going to be um, uh, starting at the evidence based on numbers. So I have a few questions. Sir. First, I'll take the audience questions, whatever has been asked. I mean, it's just the same questions again and again, unfortunately, but I have to ask them uh, because we literally did a presentation detailed on this subject last time. But again, somebody has asked, which is more conclusive to end the debate, genetics or philology and linguistics? And if genetics and all geneticists supposedly support the RN migration theory, how do we counter them? We literally did a two hour discussion last time also, but I still somebody has asked this again. Well, as I said, genetics has no relevance to this at all. And I can't say more than that. It has no relevance. That's <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? The, this question was asked so many times. That's why I raised this. Look, 
if you go to my last chat with Srikant Telegiri ji, he has given a detailed presentation on why he believes genetics has nothing to add to this subject. Even I would add to this that not only does genetics have nothing to do with the Aryan migration or Aryan invasion, I think genetics can't even prove the out of India theory. I think Srikant ji also is yeah, of the yeah, same exactly. view. Yeah, genetics proves nothing to be very honest. It shows movement of a person from point A to point B. But here, when we are talking about a Proto-Indo-European language, we are either talking about a meme or a memeplex. Now, a lot of times what happens is the movement of a meme does not coincide with a similar movement of genes at the same ratio. So that is the problem. For example, we have said this many times. Buddhism went out of India, but what was the genetic flow out of India when it came to people? Buddhism spread all around from India, but does the genetic flow you know, kind of go back and forth in the same way. It does not. So please do not mix gene flows with meme flows. They can be in the same directions at times, but they are not in the same direction necessarily all the time. What if people, let's say in the case of Buddhism, came from outside, came to India, became Buddhist, took that religion back to, uh, to their native lands. I'm just drawing a scenario for you. And then they converted those people into Buddhism there. What are you going to do then? Did Buddhism go out or not? Songs travel all the time these days. Yes, there is technology now. But imagine if, let's say somebody came all the way from South Russia to India. Or let's say somebody came from, went from India to South Russia. They learned a tool over there. And then these were traders and they came, came back and they got that technology. There is no gene flow. But the meme literally has come from one point to the other. So I'm just stating it because Srikanji is really tired of answering this question again and again and again. But as if that question was not enough, sir, here's another one to annoy you. So somebody, <laughs> somebody has said, where does Kumari Kandam fall into this? There is no proof, but a lot of people in southern India believe Indian civilization oh, emerged it. So, sir, you have any answer for that? No, I have nothing to say about it. <laughs> I mean, next they'll be asking me for about all the kingdoms which you found a find in Lord of the Rings or in uh, the Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so actually, I had a few questions. So about today's presentation. Now, when it comes to the isoglosses, so as you have said, you have divided it ideally into two parts, right? You call it stage A and stage B. Now, is there a possibility that the way you have spoken about the language spread or, uh, or the distribution of isoglosses as per the languages, is there a scope of change in those? Do you see may or what kind of evidence would, would lead to maybe some minor changes here and there? No, minor changes would be like uh, I, the only thing which stands out is that Armenian Phrygian has got some uh, shared, although it is definitely one of the five last branches, it shares all the isoglosses like that, you know, prohibitive negation and the verbal conjugation and all other kinds of things with uh, the five last, other four last branches. There are five last branches, but um, it does share one or two, which shows that they were in the center. And they were the only ones affected by what was happening in Central Asia. And uh, so anything that you find, I think, will be in Armenian region only. Certainly, I have not found anything as yet. But as Gamkrelitze himself sets out these two areas, A and B, and he tells us which uh, branches are there in those two, which exactly fits into the scenario where they are moving from area B to area A. Because the earliest migrants, he puts in area A, 
and the those who remained in the end he puts in area b which shows that it, the migration was from area b to area a and he splits the in, european branches also into two groups the first three which are supposed to have migrated are in again in area b and the two which migrated last are in area uh, i'm sorry are in area a in the north the uh, first three to migrate and the two which remained uh, uh, are found in the south the three which remained germanic baltic and slavic are found in the south in his arrangement so it is stage 3 of the six diagram that i have drawn and it okay so now Yeah, I I had another question, sir, about you know one of the first few slides where you talk about the Aryan issue is a purely linguistic issue. Now here I want to, because this, um, this is asked. This this bogey is raised. I know we've dealt with this previously, uh, also, but unfortunately the problem is you have we. it keeps coming back again now obviously somebody has asked about ambedkar's views also over here i mean we have dealt with ambedkar's views in detail in one of our previous discussions not just ambedkar even lokmanya tilak's views uh, on the uh, on this whole subject but here's my subject every time we discuss about you know glottochronology or linguistic paleontology or linguistics is a general rule we hear criticisms as in uh oh mr talagiri uh, uses too many western scientific uh, theories these are not really scientific uh, also these are laced with western biases um you know we need to get rid of our colonial lens when we are looking at this uh, subject uh, even wanting to have an answer like this or wanting to have a common ancestral language itself is a western claim so how do we deal with something like this see this people have to think this is you know of uh, certain facts are facts whether they are said by westerners or easterners the basic thing is you have to have a rational approach now how many people of these who object to this how many of them will tell us that we should stop having all these modern weapons and the indian army should be equipped with bows and arrows spears and things which were used in ancient india which are in the ramayana and mahabharat and we should try to find out uh, the different astras that they used and all that no they will say that you should uh, modernize yourself they will be using the laptop i in fact at the moment they, many of them may be watching this on the computer they don't say these things were uh, uh, started in the west they were not there in ancient india so let's not use them so whatever new things are there scientific uh, technological things you have to use them in the right rational sense not in an irrational sense now you know ancient india the however great the thinkers and writers were they were within india they did not know about the languages of europe or about hittite and tocharian which were discovered recently so how could they tell us about the relations between all these languages obviously it is the western scholars and the modern sciences of uh, indology linguistics etc which have dealt with this subject so we have to use the same techniques and some of those things are so absolute you know like i have given in my uh, last talk on i think indology bashing there are these people who refuse to accept i already wrote an blog article called uh, is uh, our german uh, french etc closer to sanskrit than malayalam kannada etc because people don't like this idea you know they say you are a westerner that's why you are um, supporting this theory about indo european westerner language. and protestant westerner yeah protestant i have been accused on the basis of i believe atluri's theory that i am being influenced by protestantism 
thought in my analysis of the Indo-European problem. This accusation was frequently made on a, 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 a group, Hindu writers group, uh, which is there on the internet. Uh, and uh, you know, there's no sense in this because see, some things are so basic, even a child will be able to understand them. Like I gave the example last time, there are certain words which are never borrowed by one language into another. One of them are the basic words of to be. Those words can develop and change, but you don't borrow those words from another language. Now, in uh, Sanskrit, I pointed out the words for I am, thou art, and he, she, it is, are asmi, asi, and asti. Now, the modern Indian languages all have completely different words, but you can make out the connection to these words. Whereas the Dravidian languages are completely unrelated words to these. Whereas on the other hand, if you see Russian, Sanskrit, asmi, asi, asti becomes esmi, esi, esti. Just the change of A to E. The same is the case with Lithuanian, which is another branch. That also has esmi, esi, esti. If you see the Avestan language, Iranian, it is ahmi, ahi, and uh, asti. If you see uh, Hittite also, it's esmi, esi, and esi. If you see Greek, also, it is the same thing. Amy is a first person and so on. So all the words are almost like dialects of a single language. In any Indian state, if you move from one area to another, maybe the words will differ even more within from dialect to dialect of the same language. Yet you find Hittite, Greek, ancient Hittite, ancient Greek, ancient Vedic Sanskrit, modern Lithuanian and modern Russian have words which are almost exactly the same for words which are never borrowed by one language from the other. So obviously they are related to each other. So if people, to understand this, if you have to become a protestant or you have to adopt western this thing, then what you are basically saying is that ancient Indians were fools. They believed in irrationality and superstition. They rejected scientific thought. So any if you are be, behaving in a uh, rational way and using scientific methods, then you are a westerner. Because Indian Easterners don't, Indians don't. That is what indirectly these people are saying. When they accuse you of me or Conrad S of using Western uh, sciences and Western techniques and Western paradigms. We are not using Western things. We are using scientific things and all that. And these people also do it when they use computers, when they send their children to America to study modern sciences, when they, uh, they accept the Western things. Then how can they be so silly? They prefer to lose the war rather than adopt a rational attitude that is very unfortunate yeah well, yeah, well unfortunately sir uh, apparently from what i understand even objectivity and rationality are protestant christian ethics so what did yeah, we yeah that is what, what they yeah so, so sir one one last question because you did talk about the Dravidian word. So I I think it's better we address this now rather than the next two presentations. So uh, I, I, I'll just ask one last question about that. Uh, Ansumali's paper recently on the ancestral uh, Dravidian languages in the Indus Valley yeah. civilization. So so basically to summarize the claim, it was about the word for tooth, right? Piru Piru, uh, which yeah. is a Dravidian word. Now they say it is derived, uh, this word's derived meaning is from the elephant thing. Um, Basically, then they go into that whole Sumerian language, Mesopotamian and other Western Asian languages. And uh, again, they say that Pilu Pilu are borrowed by Sanskrit. Uh, and then uh, 
so the first conclusion they do uh, are they saying is that that dravidian speakers are were in large numbers in ivc and the second is that uh, basically using genetics again that uh, some sort of a proto dravidian speaker uh, in ivc migrated south so so what do you have to say about that because it's very important that we should put that on the record too see certain words used in the west like the words for pepper the word for uh, ginger the word for uh, uh, jaggery they are all actually originally dra- uh, dravidian words which have been anglicized or uh, changed form and been accepted into the west so it's not that uh, dravidian words cannot go to the west so it is perfectly possible but what does that prove does this prove that the whole of india was occupied only by dravidians when the britishers came here there were no indo european languages spoken here why would they take a dravidian word so you see any language can borrow any word from anywhere now this particular word pilu if they claim that okay uh, if they claim it is a dravidian word i have no objection whatsoever i don't know the exact logic of it but the uh, dravidian word for tooth is pal in tamil etc and in kannada the pa becomes her so it is hallu so original word is obviously pal and if they say pilu is derived from it okay let us accept it but the dravidian people themselves actually use the word yane or yenugu for elephant pilu is also a secondary word but uh, why would the secondary word from the dravidian languages move all over india all over the uh, west asia in ancient times well, even then let us assume that since elephants and ivory were exported from all over india it is possible that because elephants from the coast of the south usually must have been exported to west asia so they may have borrowed this word pilu which is also there as a secondary word in dravidian languages okay so they borrowed this dravidian word the point is how does that prove that the indus valley civilization was inhabited by dravidians i just don't get the logic of two unconnected things this word jaggery uh, ginger etc borrowed by europeans does that prove that the indus valley people were uh, dravidians so why should the word elephant being borrowed by west asia prove that thing because indus valley has nothing to do with it and uh, the thing is that the aryans are supposed to have come into india sometime in 1500 bc according to them but even if you take an earlier date if they are supposed to have come into the indus valley area why did not they borrow this word pilu you don't find it in the rigveda you find it in later sanskrit in which you know so many dravidian words have come into later sanskrit neer for water mean for fish mean is so important one of the sun signs is called mean then uh, there are many many words like that which have come into later classical sanskrit but they are not there in the rigveda and if the this was a word from the harappan civilization and it was encountered by the invading aryans only in that area the elephant wouldn't they have taken this word you find it only in late post classic in classical sanskrit post vedic sanskrit you find this word pilu and uh, it has also been given a indo european derivation from the root pil etc i would argue for that it makes no difference to me whether it is an indo european word or a dravidian word the point is it is found in west asia only after 2000 bc when the mitanni people were also there also and the mitanni people are definitely not dravidian speaking they are indo aryan speakers and uh, whereas the word iba the sanskrit word which is found in the rigveda iba 
is found as i have already shown in hittite greek and uh, latin for elephant and ivory and it is derived from a proto indo european root which is also a sanskrit vedic sanskrit root now this word is found in the rigveda and in all the indo european languages so uh, which who are supposed to have separated from each other in 3000 bc so long long before this word pilu was adopted in west asia so there is really no connection with uh, the indus valley and uh, the word pilu all right so uh, just one more thing uh, i'll just leave this information to everyone if you want to even understand the whole uh, the elephant and the proto indo european homeland you can actually go and read shrikant ji's blog which was written on 11th june 2017 he had written this blog it was titled the elephant and the proto indo european homeland yeah, the elephant, you want, you and can... it, i have explained this point everything about the elephant in pitiless detail you will see even the word ibha how there are so many related words in the in sanskrit which deal with wealth with elephants with traders all derived from this root because of ivory trade lakshmi is called uh, uh, gaja lakshmi because she is shown with elephants and um, uh, uh, all uh, because they represent wealth they rep lakshmi is the goddess of wealth and uh, ibhya means uh, trade traders so you see all these uh, everything i have given in detail in my article so that can people should go and read that and then talk i have re referred given in detail about this word pilu also in that article yeah so people who are going to be watching this have actually show shared the link of that uh, similar yeah, uh, of course i did not give this dravidian word pal in my article but i have no objection to it it may well be so all right so guys we'll wrap uh, today's discussion up at this stage of the presentation we will pick it up next time uh, next week we'll pick up a uh, a uh, particular uh, day and we'll continue this presentation like i said that will be part 2 and then again we'll have be having a part 3 if you have any questions you can ask them again uh, about the first presentation because i look i get it these are very heavy presentations that's why we are giving it a gap of one week so we will we will have a minimum gap of 7 days so we will not do it before uh, wednesday next week or maybe on a friday we'll make sure that you guys have a lot of time to digest these things then maybe you can have your questions ready and you can ask them in the second part also there is no compulsion there is no such thing that if you want to have questions about part 1 you can't ask them in part 2 you can freely ask them in part 2 and we will deal with them we'll wrap today's discussion as always shrikant sir thanks a lot for coming and uh, speaking uh, speaking with us yeah and thank you for giving me this chance to present this i only hope i have been successful in conveying the thing i think if people go through this slowly at their leisure they'll be able to understand it hopefully Yeah I'm I'm pretty sure they they would do that all right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up as always please subscribe to the channel like the video leave a comment become a member on YouTube or Patreon go and buy the merch or send your donations through UPI support the charvak podcast i try my best to bring these kinds of discussions because i know nobody else is going to talk about these issues so i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye